Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is J.P. Dotton, the author of In the Forest of No Joy, The Congo Océan Railroad and the Tragedy of French Colonialism. And the book was published by W.W. W. Norton & Co. in 2021. Welcome, J.P. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. J.P., I always ask everybody who comes on the NBFS channel why... France, French, Francophone history. How did that happen to you in your life? Yeah, um, having listened to many of your podcasts, I knew this was coming. And I, I wish I had a kind of eloquent answer or a inspiring answer. But I think it was a pretty, pretty uh, circuitous path that got me to French history. I got interested in France through art history. I started hmm. um, interested in late 19th century art. I did a uh, undergraduate thesis on Georges Seurat and neo-impressionism. And I, through that, got interested, I guess, more and more just with sort of cultural history. Mm -hmm. This was the early 90s when cultural history was kind of at its heyday. Mm -hmm. And I got super interested in what it seemed to me that French historians could write about or or did write about, I should say. Long, uh, perhaps somewhat forgotten figures like Theodore Zeldin and Eugen Weber were just historians who wrote about things that I found interesting, kind of everyday uh-huh. life and the experiences of people and ideas and tastes and mentalities and this sort of thing. Um, and through that, I got increasingly interested in studying France itself. And I think once I did, I realized that France in some weird psychic way, and maybe you can psychoanalyze this, spoke <laughs> to me because it has so many paradoxes. There's something about paradoxes that kind of speak to me that I think in certain ways I might see the world uh, in paradoxes. Mm-hmm. So there was there was a weird kind of symbiosis maybe between the way in which I thought about society and history and what I found in French history. And from there, just kind of decided to become a historian at some point, and France seemed to make sense. Both of the projects that I know of, I mean, there have been other things, but the big projects, and this is the second book, the first book being An Empire Divided, Religion, Republicanism, and the Making of French Colonialism, 1880 to 1914, and that came out with Oxford University Press in 2006. They're both books, JP, as you well know, having written them, that take up issues around empire. And so how did that become the place that you turn to um, in French French history or with French history? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think actually following on the idea of paradoxes, it seemed to me that the empire was a place that, you know, many of the paradoxes at the heart of many of the issues of modern Europe and, and modern French history really came to the fore for me. I was really struck when reading about the empire, I guess with the to put it most simply, the, the kind of distance between the stated aspirations and goals of empire, certainly through 
ideas like the civilizing mission, mm -hmm. um, the kind of altruistic, you know, allegedly altruistic, even humanitarian motivations of empire and the realities of empire. So that really got me interested in, in studying colonialism. I, I really kind of, by accident, stumbled upon studying missionaries, mm -hmm. largely because uh, missionaries were... Uh, in the 19th century, very much at the sort of forefront of this, you know, civilizing mentality in, in terms of opening schools and hospitals and missionizing, um, which obviously was a complex phenomenon, uh, but certainly part of the stated reason for evangelizing was to, you know, bring uh, many Western ideas and practices and the benefits of, of, you know, quote unquote civilization to the people who they were evangelizing. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that I guess is, is one of the ways in which, you know, the, the interests I had in thinking about modern society, modernity and French history and empire all kind of came together. And so, I mean, it's come up a little bit in your answer there, but are there other things that you would want to tell us about the connections between that first book and, and this one? Like did, did one flow from the other in some way, or is it just a totally like they're both books that deal with empire and colonialism, but they weren't connected as projects? What 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 can you tell us about the the links between them? Yeah, I think the second book definitely came out of the first book, and it was a kind of long road to the second book uh, for sure. When I wrote the first book, you know, I was interested in missionary work and how missionaries fit into a kind of republican empire, right? I mean, there's a a paradox for you, right? right there. Mm -hmm. um, and my book ended up being a lot about the kind of politics of missionary work within the French empire, what it meant abroad to be French, what Frenchness meant, what the civilizing mission meant. Was it a Republican undertaking or was it uh, uh, one that was religious? Since oftentimes the projects of the, the so-called civilizing mission, things like, as I say, schools, hospitals were carried out by missionaries, religious missionaries, many of whom were deeply troubled by the Republic, deeply troubled by secularization and so forth. I ended up getting really kind of fascinated with that question with the first book. And I didn't really examine nearly as much some of the other issues that, that I came across, notably the fact that tied up with the process of allegedly civilizing, certainly colonizing uh, populations was an extraordinary amount of violence. That's really interesting. And I'm going to want to come back around to this question of violence for obvious reasons. Coming to In the Forest of No Joy, this book is a story of the building of the Congo Ocean Railroad, what you describe as, you know, one of the deadliest construction projects in history. So it's a roughly 500 kilometer stretch of railway between Brazzaville on the Congo River and Pointe Noire on the Atlantic coast. Um, so going from the interior uh, to, to the coast that was constructed uh, from the early 1920s, 1921, I think, uh, and 1924, uh, 1934 is the, is the completion of the, the construction. Can you just situate us a bit in terms of France's presence in this part of the world? Uh, I know that's probably an entire lecture course, <laughs> but just kind of get us placed in time and space a little bit uh, before we jump into the specifics of this project. Uh, sure. Um, I mean, to, to boil it down, I guess, uh, fairly dramatically, 
French interest in equatorial Africa really came about in the late 1870s and early 1880s, which was this period of time that I think most people think of as the scramble for Africa. There were a lot of different kind of adventurers and explorers who were trying to stake claims for various uh, European states. Um, and the primary one doing that for France and equatorial Africa was uh, Pierre Savignon de Braza. And de Braza moved through much of what is now Gabon, the Republic of Congo, kind of signing uh, treaties and making agreements with local uh, leaders to essentially uh, ultimately impose uh, French power in the area. Um, and what followed was was really a couple of decades almost of kind of half-hearted colonization. That is to say that the French claimed greater and greater amounts of territory, but there really hadn't been much in the way of of real colonization. Um, so we're talking huge swaths of land that were in fact not really occupied by officials or by companies or anything along those lines. Um, it was expensive. The French government really wasn't that interested in spending the kind of money that would be necessary for that. They had interests in places like you know, China that seemed more promising economically and more rewarding politically in terms of the kind of you know respect that it might garner on the international stage. So things kind of uh, remained somewhat undone, unfinished, I guess, in, in equatorial Africa. Mm. And then there was a shift in policy to uh, a policy that was fairly common in other colonies, certainly in the, the Belgian Congo to the south, um, which was this concessionary system. And the French government basically figured that they could give huge swaths of land. And, and some of these swaths of land were like the sizes of you know, New Jersey or Connecticut, sort of, mm. you know, parts, uh, parts of the United States, states, uh, countries in Europe, even Greece. Uh, wow. I think yeah. Iceland is another one. Anyway, these concessionary companies then ended up uh, trying to do the work of colonization. They would set up, mm. in theory, infrastructure. They were supposed to treat uh, local populations well and so forth. That, however, proved to be quite misguided because a lot of these companies used extraordinarily brutal tactics to get workers to work, usually to collect rubber, which was the kind of cash crop of the of the era, cash commodity. I mean, it grew wild uh, throughout the region. And in the early 1900s, uh, there was a great scandal in the Congo, uh, which led to a kind of reexamination of, of the project of colonization. Um, and de Braza actually was brought out of retirement and sent back to Central Africa, to Equatorial Africa, to examine uh, what the problem was. He wrote up a report that was later kind of buried, but it showed that there was great brutality, great corruption in mm. the French pre presence there. Um, and as a result, there was a kind of desire to reimagine colonization. And part of the reimagining of colonization in Central Africa was to build a railroad because it was believed a railroad was absolutely necessary to make the colony um, economically viable. Um, and that was really the origin of the idea of building a railroad really from around the turn of the century. Mm. There was talk about how to raise money and so forth. The First World War got in the way and then they didn't really start building the railroad. Uh, in earnest, they didn't get the money to build the railroad until 1921. And your journey to writing about this railroad, like we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, some of the conceptual 
common ground is between the first and the project and this one. But how did you, is this something that you sort of had tucked away for a while that you read about in some way and decided that you wanted to write about? Or how did you come to this project in particular? Yeah, after writing the first book, I decided that I was going to do this study of kind of the relationship between humanitarianism and humanitarian, you know, ostensibly humanitarian impulses within colonial rhetoric and violence for first the the entire French empire. And then I thought I might do it for sort of all European empires. Okay. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was, it was. How long was that book going to be? <laughs> well, that's the thing. So I, I actually remember the day I was in Paris and it, you know, how before you go into the Bibliothèque Nationale to like do some work, you kind of, I don't know, you, you kind of fortify yourself with the coffee and the cafe. And, and I remember sitting in this cafe, kind of mapping out what I was going to do. And I realized it was going to be like a 1500 page book. And I thought no one is going to publish that. Um, and it was right around that time, actually, it was I, I had literally been working on the research for this project for probably like five or six years. And I had not looked at the Congo. Um, but but very shortly thereafter, uh, I was in Aix-en-Provence and I came across a bunch of archives about the Congo Océan. And it dawned on me that in the story of the Congo Océan was a lot of the dynamics that I was interested in writing about in my, you know, imagined 1500 page book. So I thought, this is great. I can just do like one railroad uh, and, you know, condense all of the things that I wanted to talk about or think about into a single story that, you know, the the best thing I think for me about uh, writing about the construction of a railroad is that it has a beginning and a middle and an end. So it, it, you know, it was chronologically and structurally kind of complete. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to make it a, a kind of, you know, case study of what had, you know, initially been imagined as this enormous project. Um, as it turned out, it ended up being a longer book than I expected, but it still is certainly a lot shorter than 1500 pages. So, well, first of all, th- thank you for changing tack. <laughs> we would not be speaking if you had written a 1500. That is true. Could you say a little bit more about where you worked what types of sources you're dealing with. I mean, there's a way in which a project like this, you know, you're necessarily dealing with state and company and other kinds of documents. And I'm sure there are a lot of challenges involved in given what you want and what you want to try to show and who you, whose voices and stories and experiences you want to try to access. So I think you know this question that I'm asking you. You probably had to yeah. answer it a bunch. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about your your sources and archives, and and then yeah, how you're reading those things to get to get what at what you wanted to get at in this project? Yeah, I mean that's a it's a big question, definitely. I, I think one of the reasons why I didn't respond immediately to the Gide and the Londres is that there is this assumption um, among many critics of the Gides and the Londres, you know, the sort of anti-colonial voices or the critical voices of colonialism, that a lot of their material was kind of exaggerated or made up, uh, fabricated from whole cloth or um, reflects their political values more than actual realities on the ground. Mm. I mean, that certainly was the, the argument of colonial officials who tried to dismiss criticisms like that. Um, and the first thing I found was, you know, looking at the archival material, if I used the state's own documentation, reports from the ground, um, comparing those to the sorts of things that 
people like Gide and, and Londres and others were writing, um, comparing those to kind of local African newspapers to the anti-colonial press, um, I could start to kind of triangulate the different sources mm. and really realize that what they were saying was not an exaggeration. And in fact, in a lot of cases, whether they admit it or not in their writing, are in fact based on on actual official documents mm. um, or official reports. Um, so it really started to, you know, this question of kind of how do we verify these sources became really interesting to me. And I became, you know, kind of obsessed, this may be a, a heavy word, but, you know, very, very concerned, I guess, with trying to compare as many different uh, sources as I possibly could. And I also became increasingly interested in trying, you know, as difficult as it is to, to capture what the experience was for African workers, uh, because they're the ones who are usually in these sorts of uh, studies kind of weirdly marginalized, right? Uh Um, I think one of the things that really strikes me, oftentimes when I read, you know, colonial histories uh, or, you know, textbooks, any kind of general history, certainly of the 19th and 20th century, is that there's oftentimes this tendency to kind of say, you know, there was very harsh working conditions or there was great brutality or there there was horrible violence, but really not explaining what that is. Um, and it, it became increasingly apparent to me that we don't really have, I think, as, as nuanced and complex an idea of the varieties, the kind of typologies of colonial violence as we could have. Um, this is not to say there aren't people out there doing wonderful work on this, but if you compare colonial violence and our understanding of colonial violence to say, you know, violence in the Holocaust or violence in the bloodlands of, of the second world war, um, there, there's vast historiography on the myriad experiences that people have had during wartime, during pogroms, during, uh, ethnic violence that I think that colonial history for whatever reason, and I, I really don't have much of a, of an explanation has, has perhaps kind of shied away from or avoided. Hmm. Um, I mean, my own work in my own first book was very much about colonial ideology. It was much, very much about sort of French intentions. Hmm. Um, and I, I became, I guess, concerned that I was going to write a book about a railroad that really just focused on French intentions. So I really tried to use um, the archival material as best as I could to get a kind of the experience of of someone who was uh, first recruited or, I mean, oftentimes recruited by force uh, and then transported, transport sometimes was hundreds of miles to the, to the construction site and then worked on the construction site to, I don't know, it, it just seemed to me right that, that part of this history has to be the history of the experience of the, of the people who were involved. Now, to those, I, I ended up deciding to use sources that are perhaps a little bit less typical. I, I realized that, you know, I could do things, I could analyze materials like uh, food rations to see how many calories people were eating every day. Um, I could use photographs to try to, I don't know, add a different dimension to our understanding of the time of the moment as kind of primary documents of, of the experience of building it. Um, so I, I tried as best as I could to bring in as many um, sources as I as I possibly could. Now, obviously, it's not perfect. Um, there's there's plenty more I'm sure that could be said, and there's 
you know, great limitations even to these sources, I think, to, to getting at the actual experience of workers. I think, in, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, the experience of most of these people are, are lost to us. But I, I, I guess I, I went out of my way. I tried to go out of my way to, to reconstruct as best as I could what the, what the actual experience of living on the railroad would be. So, JP, I guess a question that was kind of brewing for me while I was reading the book and now in our conversation is this question about the place where French Empire, history of French Empire meets African history and how you think about that for your own work and for this project in particular. Like, where, how do you understand this history, your source material, your project in relationship to, to African history? You know, I definitely tried to to write a book that would be useful, at least maybe to hopefully to uh, to African historians. I, it's funny. I I definitely think of the book still as French history. It's the story of a French construction project um, that had obviously an extraordinary impact on hundreds of thousands of Africans. Uh, so it, it definitely shows, I think, the the real problems of thinking in terms of African history and French history. Um, I think that's been a frustration I've had. I think it's a frustration that a lot of colonial historians have. You know, sometimes it's easy if you do colonial history to feel like you're not really a historian of the metropole and you're not really a historian of the area, the region in which you, yeah. you, you situate your work. Um, so there's definitely been a bit of that. And while I said it was French history, actually, my publisher was like, oh, this is African history. So, you know, there, there's there's disagreement, certainly on, at the publishing level, as well as the the um, academic or scholarly level. Um, I, you know, I tried not to get too hung up on that. Yeah. Um, you know, Norton was less interested in historiographical debates. <laughs> yeah. So I think that it certainly was. Uh, there was a lot less pressure on me to try to situate myself in African history and to situate myself right. in French history. And and to be honest, there was a lot of freedom in that, sure. right? I could kind of move back and forth between the two. You know, I, I definitely think of this as a colonial history. The truth is, is that the story is obviously a very brutal and, and violent story. It's a, so- a story of great suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, because of that, the Africans, uh, as they appear in my uh, book, are oftentimes, you know, in, in a, a, a kind of position of, uh, of misery, of, you know, being um, subjected to mistreatment, to bad administration, to uh, poor judgment, all, all sorts of things emanating from the colonial regime. So it's not, you know, it's a it's a tough book to try to suggest that it empowers Africans. I mean, there is discussion of mm. resistance, of ways in which workers clearly um, fought the system um, and uh, tried to challenge uh, the situation in which they were put. But I don't, you know, I don't really think that it's a, that's really a book that um, explores the agency of Africans in a way that I think many African historians would would certainly prefer. And I, I'd like to think that that's much more because of the nature of the, of the material yeah. than, you know, my particular scholarly approach. Well, since you brought it up, I mean, I want to talk more about the sort of details of the book and the structure of the book, but what was that decision to move in the direction of a, you know, an academic book, but one that goes out to a wider readership? Do you want to say more about that now? 
Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I wrote the book the way I pretty much wanted to write it right. and um, didn't think about even finding a publisher <laughs> until I was about three quarters of the way through. Right. Um, and to be honest, my biggest motivation for maybe not going with the university press was because I thought it could be useful for teaching. I think many of us have used, you know, Adam Hochschild's King Leopold's Ghost, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, an incredibly powerful and, and wonderful book in many ways. Uh, but it's now, you know, maybe 20 years old, mm-hmm. a little older. This seemed to deal with France, which I know French, you know, uh, historians who are teaching French history might want to have a kind of French example of, you know, colonial violence, of the difficulties of uh, colonizing uh, in Africa and that sort of thing. So I thought, you know, maybe it would have an audience for for students, primarily undergrads, because that's sort of how I had imagined the book. So I, I tried to write it in a way that was less historiographical, I guess. Although if you look at, you know, the end notes, I certainly cite many of my uh, colleagues and and give credit where credit is due. And mm-hmm. there are ways in which it's a, it's a very academic book. Um, and I could have published it, I think, with an academic press. But I thought, you know, why not try this thing? I mean, it's something that I think many of us are now faced with who are writing books. You know, our universities are like, well, historians especially need to reach a broader audience. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? How do we go about doing it? And this seemed like a topic, sadly, I mean, in some ways, because let's face it, I mean, part of the appeal, I think, for a publisher and for a a broader audience is the brutality of the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I have no doubt about that. I mean, um, you know, there's the famous line in journalism of if it bleeds, it leads, you know, and I think that there is a kind of audience for difficult material about, you know, human suffering, which is a whole topic that we could problematize for sure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I ended up going with it. And, and I think, you know, both in terms of thinking about kind of writing it more for students and for a broader audience than for academics, um, I think did shape the way in which I wrote the book. You know, in, in graduate school and, and when you write for a scholarly audience, I think it's very important to delineate what your arguments are and what your contributions are. And, you know, in French history, I mean, it's almost a cliche at this point that you have like three points to make, you know, <laughs> on whatever subject that you're you're talking about, right? And I really wanted to try to write the book in a way that, you know, was narrative, that told the story, but that also tried to present the material in a way that would raise questions in the reader's mind Mm -hmm. and let the reader kind of answer the questions for themselves. One of the things I definitely tried to do when I was writing and, you know, whether I'm successful or not is is, uh, up to readers to decide. You know, I tried to remain as humble a kind of presence as I could Mm -hmm. because I I did not want to be sensationalist. I did not want to be, you know, over the top with... uh, Kind of moralizing. I, I really wanted the the history and the episode to speak for itself, uh-huh. and for people to be able to make their own judgment. And part of that was through a kind of you know respect for the material for the people who who experienced the building of the Congo Océan. And I think part of it also was because we live in this moment where there's still such a polemical kind of debate about colonialism and the role of colonialism that it seemed to me that. I could be just as eloquent presenting the case and the realities as best as I could 
uh, of this particular episode as I could kind of banging a drum and talking about the horrors of colonialism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I firmly have my own opinion about the horrors of colonialism. I think that it comes through very clearly in the book. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, was, it was something that I wanted to find a way to state without stating it, if that makes sense. I think the, the project does that. Yeah. Along these lines, the title is so incredibly evocative, and I know it's from, uh, is it Marcel? Yeah, is Sauvage. It? Sauvage. Yeah. So yeah, if you could just tell us about what made you choose that. You know, I, I had a really, really hard time titling the book. Um, and I think In the Forest of No Joy was chosen through discussion with my editor very, very late, like right before the the book was kind of you know, off to, off to print. Mm. Um, I'd had a number of, you know, less interesting titles, maybe like, you know, the violence of empire and things like that. I had a few kind of flourishing uh, references to biblical passages or something like that. But then I did come up with in the forest of no joy. It was on a list of titles that I gave to the publisher. You know, it it did seem quite evocative and it was a quote uh, from Marcel Sauvage. So you know, it, it sort of worked well, I think. And I think it captures the spirit of the book. The narrative is so difficult and compelling in this book. And reading about this episode through your research and your questions about how is this possible? Yes, it's the contradictions, but what specifically made it possible for um, colonialists to disregard human life realize this project at such tremendous cost what how many thousands of africans died in this project what's the the number the range that you you give us you know we really don't know i think that's in, in some ways the most painful answer that there yeah. is i mean certainly there have been studies that have suggested demographic studies both at the time and by historians since to suggest somewhere between 17 and 23,000 uh, deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the number is is probably quite a bit higher, just because of the ways in which the administration counted, or should I say, didn't count, failed to count mm-hmm. those who died. You know, I think I say it at some point that maybe the greatest violence is that we'll never really know how many people uh, yeah. perished building it. So, and the ways in which you're trying to figure out. I mean, there's the uh, there's the set of explanations that has to do with this with racism and the inability to even see or believe the humanity of the people involved, the Africans involved in the labor to put this project together to build this railroad. But also another explanation that you offer has to do with poor management and administration and bureaucracy and some of these other kinds of things. So could you tell us a little bit about how those two things, those two kinds of explanations are well, not mutually exclusive, but also how they're they're working for you through the through the project. You know, the the, the sort of short answer, I, if there is one, I guess, on on why this kind of brutality was possible. Um, obviously, racism, um, the kind of dehumanization of uh, colonial populations generally, but I think particularly in in equatorial Africa, where there was a a long history of extraordinary violence perpetrated by colonial settlers, concession workers uh, on local populations. I mean, it was a it was an economy that was founded, a colonial economy that was founded in the 1890s and early 1900s on violence. 
But I think that what really kind of fueled the engine of the process of the violence was the fact that there was a colonial administration uh, that was convinced that it could build an extraordinarily complex and difficult uh, construction project, a railroad, in very, very difficult geographical conditions when it was wholly incapable of doing it. The colonial administration, you know, on the ground was small. It did not have the kind of presence in the country that uh, the governor general, um, uh, Rafael Antonetti, who plays a major role in the book and is really central to the story. It didn't have the the infrastructure that it believed it did. It didn't have the administration that it believed it did. So it continually tried to do things on the cheap. Um, and it did so usually relying on either violence on the one hand in terms of getting workers to work or extraordinary deprivation in terms of not being able to feed workers, house workers, treat workers who fell ill. The, the ways in which the kind of, you know, inabilities of the colony, of the colonial state uh, to deal with these issues, but yet to push forward, uh, really explain, I think, a lot of why there was such death, why there was such mistreatment mm. and brutality, and why, you know, a 300 mile, it's a 312 mile railroad took 13 years to build. Mm. Um, basically, there were no machines, very, very few machines were used. It was largely uh, constructed almost entirely with, you know, hands and heads and feet and bodies, uh, moving mm-hmm. material, an extraordinary amount of material. It's really, uh, it, it, it is, and, you know, there's one of these, again, you know, kind of paradoxes of empire. I mean, in a lot of ways, it is an extraordinary construction uh, feat, what, what they did. I mean, they built hundreds of bridges and they moved mountains, quite literally. Um, but the price that was paid was, you know, paid by African laborers. You mentioned Antonetti, and you know he's one of the central figures of the book, as you say. And I, I found that really interesting. How you you know through the narrative that goes from you know the launch of the project in 1921 all the way through to the to the end of the uh, of the construction that you know there are these central figures: Governor General is it Ogenier, and then mm-hmm. um, Georges uh, Pasha. Yeah, Pasha. Pasha, and then Antonetti, and you, I think, in the book do do a really good job of you know informing the reader about the particular brutalities attra- attached to each of these central figures, but to move away from that notion that that their specific and individual acts were somehow down to like a personal evil or a personal like the, to to try to find that balance between villains, specific villains in the story, and then the the structural violence uh, and brutality of the whole project. Do you know, do you know what I'm getting yeah, at? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I think that's right on. I mean, Antonetti, Antonetti actually is one of the, one of the reasons why those, when I went to the archives, the project spoke to me so much because, I mean, anybody who's done colonial history has read a lot of reports from, you know, these administrators from governor mm-hmm. generals or from lower down officials. Um, and they're usually not terribly interesting, but um, Antonetti was, you know, I don't think he's like the villain of the story and that he's mm-hmm. very much a byproduct of this bureaucratic administrative system that was colonialism in the twenties and thirties. Um, mm-hmm. And he was obsessed with writing reports. And um, I, I really can't uh, overemphasize the, 
thousands of pages of reports that he would write about this railroad. I mean, he clearly was just, you know, obsessed to, with the project. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't an obsession that really seems to have come out of his, you know, evil personality. I don't want to suggest that he was some sort of curtsy character or something, but really it just kind of, you know, he was a passionate functionnaire. I mean, I know we don't really think of it, uh, mm-hmm. functionnaire is necessarily passionate, but I think that's exactly what he was. And so he really, I think, did uh, a kind of dual job that was essential for shaping the way in which the railroad was constructed. On the one hand, I think he was um, very, very motivated to make sure that no matter what the, the building went through, and that oftentimes meant you know, allowing brutality to be used to recruit workers or um, skimping on uh, payment for food or for shelter, that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. at the same time, he was also this incredible dogged defender of the project itself, um, writing letters to newspapers, to his superiors in Paris, to anyone really who would listen, you know, denying any kinds of critiques of the conditions on the railroad, Mm -hmm. promoting the idea that he had somehow created this incredibly regulatory system that guaranteed that things like mistreatment were impossible, that starvation of workers was impossible. So he put up this kind of bureaucratic veil really over the the entire project that I think allowed, you know, politicians in uh, Paris to continue to fund it, allowed even, you know, critics of colonialism in Geneva at places like the International Labor Organization to, you know, more or less leave it alone to refuse to critique it in any kind of way. I mean, he was the, the real kind of rhetorical voice, I guess, really behind the project. You do. You mentioned this earlier, JP. You know that it, that it's difficult to get at the real experiences of workers in, in great detail of Africans who suffered and died as part of this project, and and that there were moments in and and pockets of resistance. You know, the, everything from like sabotage to people attempting to flee um, what were ostensibly forced labor conditions. And you also get at what you can about the experiences of the few women that were pulled into this project in various ways and the ways that violence, the violence of the project affected women differently. Could you talk a little bit about those more difficult to get at parts of the the story? Obviously this was a project that was carried out overwhelmingly by men. I mean, it was, you know, strong laborers that the colonial regime was interested in. But women did definitely play a role. Um, They were brought in sometimes as wives of workers, uh, sometimes as, you know, basically cooks and cleaners on the uh, work sites. Um, So there was a certain amount of recruitment, especially as the construction went on, of women. That said, it was extraordinarily difficult in the archives to find out much information about women. Really, the only time that they came up was when there were fights over women, which were occasionally documented. There were cases of reports of prostitution of some of the women on the on the site. There were, you know, fleeting reports of women who lived in the region of where the railroad was being 
built who would come and sell food or who would offer to work uh, kind of piecemeal work, daily work uh, for a little bit of money. So it was really quite difficult to get at that. I mean, there are certain things that are, I, I have found, at least in the subject matter that I've looked at, things like gender relations, sexuality, that are simply very, very difficult to find in the archives. Mm-hmm. Um, just because colonial officials, I don't know if it's out of you know prudery or lack of interest or a combination probably of both, that just don't really come up much. So, I mean, with things like uh, issues like gender, I mean, I, I tried to use the few photographs I could find of women as a mm-hmm. you know at least a kind of sense of um, the roles that. Uh, women played to to give a sense of, you know, their uh, existence uh, on the railroad might have looked like. But definitely uh, the the issue of the role of women, the role played by women is one of the one of the harder uh, questions I think I had to try to answer. You do talk in the book, JP, about like it wasn't like this was a huge secret <laughs> at the time, right? right? And that there were accounts of journalists and others who were aware that this was going on. I guess I, I want to ask you know you to say a little bit more about how widespread that was and to talk about how you balance in the book that the idea that there's the colonial and company rhetoric that you know kind of clobbers those voices of exposure of this with this is about modernity, this is the cost of progress, some of the outright lying that you're that you referred to earlier, but also just the idea that, you know, progress is difficult and, you know, this is all about civilizing and modernizing. And yeah, I just want I wanted you to to say a little bit more about that. To me, that was one of the great mysteries of the project, really. As you say, it was it was known. Um, it was written about. It was debated uh, on a number of instances, uh, a number of occasions in the National Assembly. Um, you know, people like uh, André Gide were quite well known. Yeah. His book was quite well known. Albert Londres wrote serials for uh, newspapers in France, uh, in which he talked quite openly and with photographs of uh, the brutality that was going on. One of the the only ways that I came to kind of understand it, I think it's a combination of things. Um, It really is striking, and I think this is a subject that colonial historians could explore more. In the 1920s and 30s, you know, the, the misery of colonial populations for whatever reason, did not really resonate as a national issue Mm. uh, in France, even when there were these uh, quite well-known affairs of uh, extreme violence. Uh, I mean, including the the Doke and Gode uh, controversy that led Brazzaville to go to to go back to Central Africa and investigate uh, the mistreatment of colonial populations in Central Africa in, in the early 1900s. This was this affair where these two administrators um, blew up with a stick of dynamite um, a, uh, an African man and then um, killed a, a second one, decapitated him. And it got reported in the press and it was this huge issue for a very short period of time. And Braza went and he examined it, um, his findings of the horrors of colonialism in Central Africa at the time ended up being buried. It was buried in the archives until it was found again in the 1960s, right? So these affairs would come about and then they would disappear almost immediately. They didn't really have the kind of lasting power. One of the things that that struck me is why the railroad 
seemed like such an interesting case study mm-hmm. is that it went on for 13 years. I mean, there were there were there were people like Gide and Lond who were writing, you know, in 1926, 27, 28. There were others who wrote later in the early 30s. When it was built, there was discussion of the of the violence and the loss of life. So it came up again and again, and it kept going away. And I think that the way in which it was covered up um, or sort of dispensed of, really, in terms of public opinion, um, was, on the one hand, this kind of relentless uh, campaign that I mentioned of Antonetti's of just denial, denial, denial. And he really would vilify the people who wrote, right? I mean, he would write these reports about, uh, you know, Londres and Sauvage and others as being traitors to the country, as being, you know, uh, in the pay of the Belgians or of the English, you know, outlandish kinds of accusations just to discredit them. And the other thing that I think, you know, maybe this is a product to a certain extent of the time I was writing, which was in the midst of the Trump administration. But one of the things that really struck me is the way in which these issues were politicized between the left and centrists and the right, where any kind of criticism in the 20s and early 30s of colonialism, of colonial excesses, of brutality was dismissed as like communist mm-hmm. plots or, you know, socialist lies, this sort of thing. And it, it really struck me at how incredibly effective rhetorically in terms of public opinion it was to label something that was very real um, just a political mm-hmm. position, right? Just as kind of political posturing. Um, and that's how I think colonialism came to be discussed. It really wasn't that much about um, the legitimacy of mistreatment of populations or the rightness or wrongness of policies. It oftentimes was a kind of, are you for it? Are you against it? And that was always shaded in the in the debate by what your politics were. Um so it was, a, it was, I think, just an interesting way in which colonialism, and I, I, you know, like to know more about it. I think there's room for more study of this, but the ways in which colonialism as a subject was picked up as a political uh, issue um, and debated, I think, could tell us a lot about, you know, why and how people responded to stories. Um, you know, the the truth or the falsehood of the accounts that were coming out of the Congo Océan, which, as you say, mm-hmm. were fairly numerous, rarely debated. It was always who was saying right. it and what their motivations were. You know, uh, it, the fake huh. news element um, was very, very much uh, at play. I mean, Antonetti was essentially, you know, to put it into 21st century terms, calling most of right. these things fake news. Um, and that was sadly, remarkably effective at kind of ending debate about it. We've brought up a couple of times, you know, this issue of researching and writing about colonial violence, JP, and I feel like that could be the subject of a whole other conversation that we could have. But I do, I guess I want to ask you at least one question about this experience of writing the book and, you know, what you were saying about when you were writing the book is interesting too. But, you know, what would you say was the sort of most challenging aspect of this project for you with respect to the violence question? As a researcher and writer, as you grapple with this question of, you know, somebody who works on colonial history with this question of violence and how we how we share it, how we find it and, you know, focus on it and then transmit it through narrative, through our analyses, you know, what what in this particular project 
was, yeah, the most challenging or a uh, very challenging aspect of it that, that you would want to tell us I think about. there were a lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, it was a, it was a yeah. really difficult book to write, less in terms of doing the research. The research was fairly straightforward, right? I mean, I didn't yeah. have to go, you know, digging in personal archives in some faraway places. I mean, I, you know, I went to uh, Brazzaville, went to the archives there, I went to France, I went to kind of the usual suspect places, because as you say, there's plenty of material on it. It's fairly easily accessible. You know, I spent a lot of time just kind of soul searching as a historian. Um, mm. And I'm still, you know, incredibly insecure about the, a lot of the decisions I made just about you know, on the one hand, I think we should kind of bear witness to colonial violence because so few people mm-hmm. at the time did. And I think that we have so much, as I said earlier, information about other episodes of you know modern European history where there was a lot of violence. So I thought it was important to, to write realistically and truthfully about the conditions of the railroad, um, even if they were quite painful um, and to talk about the brutality that was involved. But at the same time, um, I really spent a huge amount of time trying to, you know, figure out how to do that in a way that was not, um, you know, objectifying uh, Africans in some sort of way or, or um, was trying to uh, be salacious in any kind of way. I mean, there's a, there's a, I think a good reason why many scholars have been hesitant to talk about the violence of, uh, of many situations, but particularly situations where there are non-Europeans involved, um, because it does seem to smack in a certain way with the kind of voyeurism that uh, colonial or Orientalist fantasies, you know, played on themselves at the time. Um, so I tried, I mean, you know, I'll leave it up to readers to decide whether I succeed or not, but I tried to be very, very sober in the way in which I described things. I tried to keep it Mm -hmm. straight to the, to the documentation, to leave very little commentary about it. There are still questions that I, I continue to grapple with. Should I use photographs? What kinds of photographs should I use? Um, and I do use some photographs. I tried to use photographs purely uh, as evidence, um, as, as documents that I could analyze, which I analyze in the text, mm-hmm. to not use photographs just as decoration, right? It's like, oh, here's yeah. some broken bodies. I mean, I try to use them as sources that will tell us something about a particular moment in the construction yeah. of the railroad or in the lives of the workers. Um, there were some photographs that were, in my opinion, too horrific to use. They just seemed... Like they were such, I mean, many of the photos that I use, I think are in a certain way that the production of the, of the photograph were themselves acts of violence. Um, but I think some were so egregious that there was no way I was going to include those in the book. Um, so there was a, a weighing, a constant weighing of, should I use this kind of photo? Should I not use that kind of photo? Um, and I think, you know, I, I talked to a lot of colleagues. I presented some things at conferences to try to get other people's opinions to try to, mm-hmm. you know, measure how we think about going about those. And I think that, you know, there's no easy answer to these questions. Yeah. I mean, it's I would be totally open to people saying that I shouldn't have used some of the photos I did. Others uh, told me at the time that I should have used the ones that I refused to use. So, you know, obviously different people have different opinions. Um, my my take was to just try to, you know, as I say, remain humble through writing it to think about what the kind of bigger message of doing this kind of history was. 
I find that response so refreshing, you know, because I think we tend to put pressure on each other and ourselves to like get it right or, you know, like as if that's even a thing. Because as you say, I mean, even if we're just taking the example of photographs, sure, there will be people who will uh, take the perspective that telling the story at all is indulging in some kind of, but then to not tell the story is, and to not share that. Yeah. To say that it's an open question. And I really appreciate you saying like that you're, you're open to the possibility that people would have different perspectives on it rather than defensive about it. Or, because I think, I think that's inevitable. Yeah. um, With a project like this. I don't think you can resolve it. I don't think you can be sensitive enough for all readers or, uh, explicit enough for all readers, right? Like there's no, there's no, um, it's not a science, this part. So I found it to be a, an incredibly difficult, you know, not, not because you're a terrible writer or anything, JP, but like a difficult <laughs> read, but I am glad that I know about it now and, and can teach it. So I've got this question I ask everybody at the end, JP, which is what are you working on now? Oof. Do you want to tell us? You know, it's been super difficult to uh, come out of this book in a lot of ways. I mean, I guess the one thing I didn't answer when you were saying what was hard about the book, uh, it was, it was, uh, and I say this not to to bring any kind of pity upon me, but as a, I don't know, as a kind of way of being honest about how we need to think about the impact of our scholarship on scholars, right? Um, it was an mm. incredibly difficult book to write. And I was uh, not in a good place emotionally for uh, probably about two years around the time I finished and, and afterwards. Mm. So it's been a little bit slow coming out, finding a new subject. Um, I actually, my wife was like, you've got to write something comic. She wanted me to write a novel, just to write something a little lighter. Um but I, I haven't really tried my hand at that. I'm actually right now I'm playing with the idea of writing a book about the remarkably large number of people who named themselves kings of places in the empire in the 19, uh, 19th century and early 20th century. Um, hmm. Just because I think there's quite a bit to be learned about empire and about masculinity and about ideas of uh, racial superiority that goes into a lot of these stories of men. I mean, they were overwhelmingly men, exclusively men, really, who would uh, go to usually far-flung parts of uh, colonies or even kind of what they saw as unclaimed territory and name themselves kings of them, uh, of these areas and people but we'll see. I, I'm I'm actually headed to the archives in a couple of weeks, so I'm hopeful to get greater clarity. I think for someone like me who focuses so much on archival stories, uh, the pandemic has been difficult to deal with because it's been hard to sure. get to the archives. But um, I now luckily have a couple months off, so I've got some time to to spend looking for new stories. Well, and yeah, to be clear, like for a while, I didn't even ask that question. I was like, I'm not going to ask people what they're working on because we've been, the world is on fire and falling apart and 
who's working on anything? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, and I actually think the, the honest answer is one that's really good for people to hear, which is that for both of those reasons, because of the kind of work that you do and how the stoppages of the last few years have made all of that kind of work harder, but also the idea that, yeah, people don't always have uh, something that they, they, they don't always have not the capacity in terms of the ability to write or think or whatever, but like the capacity coming out of certain types of projects to, to move right into something different or something new. And that like, that's part of it, right. That we're, we're not machines making this, this stuff. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, this is, this is dark and you can cut it out if you want, (laughs) but we, you know, we have witnessed people in our, profession commit suicide in the last yeah. few years. And, you know, I really don't think that the mental health of scholars and the impact that our work has on us as just human beings with emotions and psychology, you know, I, I don't really feel like we take that into account. I mean, I, I certainly mm-hmm. didn't have the appreciation of like Holocaust historians or, or, you know, war historians that I have now. I mean, to to live with really graphic interpersonal violence day in and day out is is not something that's easy to do. And I think that mm-hmm. as we become much more open to the psychologies and the emotional needs of our students, I think we need to do the same with, with ourselves, with scholars, because I think that there is a huge impact that, I mean, you know, you work on atomic testing. I mean, uh, you know, these are, these are, difficult subjects to to deal with personally just mm-hmm. the kind of emotional dimensions of existential questions can be really troubling beyond you know the daily news so, right. it's like adding yeah. to everything else like climate change isn't enough let's write about colonial violence <laughs> so yeah well jp i just want to thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with me and and for writing this really important book Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure.